prepared a bad rule. We have done that in the past. We've rarely been successful. Okay. All right. Courts just, it's, it's a roll of the dice. That's right. They On the next AOA, John Baranek of DTN Weather will join us. We'll talk about this weather market developing across the Corn Belt. Tune in next time to AOA. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. We've got a lot coming on today's program. There's work in Washington, D.C. this next week finalizing the EPA's RFS rule. We're going to talk to Kurt Kovarik from the Clean Fuels Alliance of America here in just a moment about what that organization hopes to see when the EPA releases that next week. And then in segment two, we're going to talk with Mike Steenhook of the Soy Transportation Coalition, a bill pending in the House right now that would raise truck weights fairly substantially. Soybean growers are pushing for it. Michael, fill us in. And then in segment three, we're going to visit the World Pork Expo virtually. Dr. Steve Meyer from Partners for Production Agriculture will be joining us here on the program. We're going to talk through the economics in the hog industry. And folks, it is not a pretty picture for our friends in pork production. Get out there this weekend, cook up some loins. And then we're going to end the show with Jim Baer, our friend who's president and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association. They're pushing hard for an agreement with the U.K. It would benefit apple growers. He'll fill us in on how that's all going to work here at the end of the program. Before we dive into all of that, however, let's turn the focus to bio fuels. Kurt Kovarik, Vice President of Federal Affairs at the Clean Fuel Alliance America, joins us now. And Kurt, June 14th, we expect to see some final numbers from the EPA. Are we going to get them on June 14th? And what does CFAA hope that EPA publishes? Hey, Mike, glad to be with you. Uh, you're exactly right. Due to a, due to a court-imposed deadline, EPA is required to put out the final rule on June 14th, that's next Wednesday. We anticipate we'll get something on that day, whether we get all of it or not. Uh, within a day or two, I anticipate we'll we'll get we'll get it all by the end of the week. Uh, what we have in front of us here is uh, folks are familiar with EPA's uh, volume setting under the Renewable Fuel Standard. Uh, they've done this for many years, uh, one year at a time. 
this year they have an opportunity to do multiple years, which they've proposed to set volumes for 2023, 24, and 25, which ordinarily would be great to send a, a long term or provide a little bit more of a, a future uh, market prediction and setting so that people understand. Unfortunately, EPA has uh, really missed the mark in the in the proposal that they put forward. We see right now huge expansion uh, within the biodiesel and biomass-based diesel industries, whether that's uh, renewable diesel coming online, excitement over sustainable aviation fuel, and EPA's proposal really missed the mark. Uh, what they proposed was to increase around 65 million gallons a year over the over the three-year period. That's less than 10% of what the Department of Energy predicts is going to actually come online. So what's wow. that? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 shocking in, in how they completely misread what's happening in the marketplace. I mean, you pick up a newspaper in the Midwest and you understand uh, all the all of the announcements that have been made with respect to expansions in soybean crush. 20, 20 expansions or, or new facilities in uh, about that many states, 10, 10 or 15 states at an at a investment cost of about $6 billion, all predicated on uh, continuing this path towards development of biodiesel, renewable diesel, and sustainable aviation fuel, all of which is at risk and could be undercut if we don't get these numbers right. And so in order to get these numbers right, Kurt, I understand the Clean Fuels Alliance, along with a number of your other partners, recently wrote a letter to, to President Biden to encourage him to take a look at this. And what did you tell the president? We told the president what's at stake, you know, and put it in the terms that the president, this president cares about. So, you know, I talked about the investment in, in uh, uh, soybean crush, $6 billion. So we all know what that means to a soybean farmer if their beans are being processed 30 miles down the road instead of going on a barge and, and getting exported, right? We all know what that means for the livestock industry in terms of having additional soybean protein meal available for, for feeding livestock. Uh, what does it mean in terms of energy dependence? Why, why wouldn't we want to promote the build out of domestic energy production so that we're less susceptible uh, when when Russia invades Ukraine or, or you have uh, uh, disturbances in the Middle East. And then in terms of the president's ambitions on climate, our fuel is on average 75% less carbon emitting, 50% less particular emissions, both of which this president cares about probably more than anything else uh, is addressing climate. So those are, those are the messages that we've tried to convey to say, listen, we want to deliver all of these policy priorities, energy independence, rural economic development, cleaner air on a silver platter. All you have to do is acknowledge it and and drive it in the right direction. Instead, uh, their proposal undercuts it. So that's the message that we, we sent to the president uh, earlier this week. You know, Kurt, it's so important, and I'm so glad to hear CFAA pushing this. It does all of those amazing things, and I think most importantly, it can do it now. The industry's in existence. We're not relying on science or technology of the future to bring these costs down. It's here today, and as you mentioned, the enthusiasm is there. So what happens if June 14th we get this update from the EPA, Kurt, and it's, it's not what we'd like to see? What's the industry's response after proposing $6 billion in investments? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm hopeful that our message, the message that you just conveyed, I should bring you in, into my meetings uh, with me. That was very, very well said. Uh, I hope that the message is received. We feel like uh, the, the proposal or what is going to become final is moving in the right direction. The signals have been sent that it's moving in the right direction. We just hope it's significant enough. If, if not, 
you know, our, our only recourse in this is essentially to take EPA to court and argue that, that they got it wrong. Now, that's not, that's not a path to success, and I prefer not to do that, and I, I hope we don't have to do it. I hope that, you know, the conversations that we've had, I mean, we've had letters sent from the Senate that had uh, 15 or 17 uh, senators, a letter from the House that had 35 uh, signatures. This is a common sense, easy to do, and as you said, delivers those benefits today. We don't have to wait 10 or 20 or 30 years, if ever, to electrify heavy-duty trucking or rail or ocean going or or uh, aviation. We can deliver those benefits today. We can rely on the American soybean farmer to produce it uh, and, and deliver those carbon and, and clean air benefits now while reducing our dependence on whether it's Saudi Arabia, Russia, or Iran for their for their oil uh, imports. To me, there's no downside. I just hope the, the message is received at this at this administration. And I guess that's my, my next question to you, Kurt. If you know, those of us out here in the countryside were, were feeling a little left behind these discussions happening behind closed doors in Washington, D.C., is there anything we can do over the next five days before this final set announcement to help the EPA think this thing through? The best thing right now would probably be to reach out to your, your senator or your representative to let them know what's at stake, that, that numerous folks have weighed in with the data and provided the input necessary for them to get these numbers right. And that there are people paying attention and and there's a lot at stake here that's that's the bottom line there's a lot at stake there's a lot of money potentially to invest in rural america here in, in keeping liquid fuels available just got to have the policy priorities in place kurt you of course at cfaa writing on these issues constantly keeping up to speed tell our listeners where can they go to learn some of the research you've been doing with cfaa yeah all of our information is available on our website at cleanfuels.org that's where you'll find our comments our, our uh, advocacy uh, efforts that we've had on this and, and reach out to us. If you wanna, wanna be a part of the organization or be a part of the team, help us out in any way, we're, we're, we're glad to have you. It's push time right now, folks. Watch for that EPA RFS final set rule on or about the 14th. We've been talking to Kurt Kovark, Vice President of Federal Affairs at the Clean Fuel Alliance Americas. And Kurt, thanks for joining us today. Always glad to be with you, Mike. Stick around, folks. Mike Steenhook with the Soy Transportation Coalition will join us here when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Did you know that pork is the world's most consumed meat? Pork comprises over one-third of all meat consumed. Pigs were domesticated over 9,000 years ago in 7,000 BC, and there are more than 180 species of pigs. Why pork? Well, it's not just because everybody loves bacon. Historically speaking, pork is a very easy meat to preserve via smoking, curing, or salting. Not only could it keep well before refrigeration, but it also tastes great under various preservation tactics and adaptable to a variety of flavors, spices, and dishes across different cultures and regions. There are twice as many pigs as there are people in Denmark. Did you also know that China is the world's lead pork producer? In 2020, they produced an impressive 41.13 million metric tons of the meat, which equates to almost 91 billion pounds. 
So the next time you dive into that plate of bacon, know that pork is the world's most consumed meat. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. On the internet, there are tons of special networking websites, but one stands apart. This one saves lives. It's matchingdonors.com. Matchingdonors.com links organ donors with people in need of kidney and other transplants. Did you know in the U.S., 19 people die each day waiting for an organ transplant? If you've ever considered becoming a living organ donor, or if you're someone in need of an organ transplant, please visit matchingdonors.com. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, we can make a difference bite by bite. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and we're going to turn the focus back to Washington, D.C. next. We had some important votes yesterday, or two days ago, rather, in the uh, the House Infrastructure Committee. Saw some movement on a law that could help American soybeans get moved around the country. Joining us to talk about that and other issues in the supply chain world is Mike Steenhook. He serves as the Executive Director for the Soy Transportation Coalition. And Mike, thanks for making the time to join us on AOA today. Hey, it's always good to be with you, Mike. Thanks for having me. Let's talk here about this bill from Representative Dusty Johnson out of South Dakota, Mike. This is, I believe, H.R. Bill 3372, potentially pushing the opportunity to raise weight limits on semi-trucks. Can you talk to me a little bit about what's been proposed here? Yeah, this is a piece of legislation that was proposed, and and it actually did pass out of the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee by a a bipartisan vote, 33 to 27. And what the bill does is it will allow states, and it's a voluntary program, so if a state doesn't want to participate, they don't have to, but if a state does want to participate, it will allow them to enable six-axle, 91,000-pound semis operate on the interstate system within the state. Um, typically, the, the limit is an 80,000-pound weight limit on interstates, and that's usually uh, accompanied by a, a five-axle configuration. Now, a lot of states, they already, on their local roads, on their state roads, they already allow heavier weight limits, particularly if you have additional axle configurations. So this would just allow that traffic to also go onto the interstate system. And so the, the next 
So it passed out of the House Transportation Infrastructure Committee. It will eventually be entertained by the full House of Representatives, and a companion bill is expected in the Senate. And that's something we think is a, is a very common sense piece of legislation. Uh, it's a way of moving a given amount of freight via fewer trips. That additional axle is really key because what that does is it provides additional braking capacity, but that the actual stopping distance of a six axle 91,000 pound semi is actually less than a five axle 80,000 pound semi because of that additional braking capacity that that additional axle provides. And that additional axle will further distribute the weight so that the actual imprint on the road is actually less than a five axle. 80,000 pound semi. So it, it has a very favorable story to tell from a motor safety perspective. Um, but then it also certainly has and an infrastructure uh, preservation perspective, but then it also will provide a lot of cost savings for, for agriculture and our food delivery system. It's just one other way of reducing the cost of, of food by reducing the transportation cost that, that accompanies it. Yeah, diesel prices are down a little bit from summer of 2022, but it is still expensive to haul this freight around the country. Mike, watching here for an 11,000 pound increase in, in overall gross vehicle weight, I mean, that's almost six tons. Do we have any studies done as to what sort of efficiencies this could bring to agriculture in particular? Yeah, you know, we've, we've, there's been a lot of research done and we've certainly conducted it. And, you know, one of the things I like to do is I, I like to present a side-by-side -side comparison of, of a grain elevator that handles the same amount of freight. Um, I use an example of an elevator that handles 6 million bushels of, of grain, 4 million bushels of corn, 2 million bushels of soybeans. And they have a, each of those two grain elevators have a 40-mile journey to the delivery location, so an 80-mile round-trip journey. And if, a, if one elevator has to restrict itself to five axles, 80,000 pounds, and the other one can enjoy a six axle, 91,000 pound semi, the, the grain elevator that can take advantage of a six axle, 91,000 pound configuration will have 838 fewer trips on an annual basis. This is one grain elevator. So you talk about efficiency, but you also talk about motor safety. So you've got 838 fewer times that a semi is leaving that facility coming back to that facility. Motor safety has a lot to do with the number of vehicles that motors they encounter. So there's 838 fewer trips that that grain elevator is going to, going to send out and bring back just due to having more efficient truck transportation. That will save that elevator $31,000 annually just because they're burning less fuel. That means there's less emissions. It's more sustainable. And, you know, we've got a persistent truck driver shortage, and that's particularly acute in rural areas where all these elevators are saying, where can I get the truck drivers? Well, here's a scenario that will provide a way to move a, a given amount of freight with fewer trips. And so it really checks off a lot of important boxes. We think it makes a lot of sense. And so we're hopeful to see Congress uh, further proceed with it during the course of this year. You know, I, I've, I've heard questions, in fact, just got a comment here from a listener in Illinois wondering, can our infrastructure interstate-wise across the country, Mike, handle an additional 11,000 pounds per load? And uh, can you talk to us again about the axles and how that breaks up the weight limit? Yeah, that, that's really important. So you're, you're adding that additional axle, which means you're adding, you know, additional tires. And so that, that weight is being distributed across more more tires and so that that's what spreads the weight out so the actual the imprint on the road is actually less and it actually is compliant with 
what's called the federal bridge formula. And that's, a, that's an equation that was developed by the Federal Highway Administration that basically stipulates what is the accept, acceptable load limit that a bridge can accommodate. And that, and that six axle 91,000 pound configuration is compatible with that federal bridge formula. So that was something that we really important. We wanted to make sure that you don't have too much weight that all of a sudden that federal bridge formula, it would be in, in opposition to it. So it's, it's acceptable for bridges. It actually has less of an imprint on, on the actual roads themselves. And again, you're talking about wear and tear on our infrastructure is not just a function of the weight of the individual vehicle, but it's also how many vehicles actually transit a particular stretch of road or bridge. So again, back to our example, an elevator that is able to enjoy these higher allowances will have 838 fewer semis coming, leaving the facility, coming back to that facility. That's going to have a significant positive impact on wear and tear as well. Mike, let's look out a little bigger picture here. You mentioned with companion bill potentially coming in the Senate. Uh, what's been the response so far of legislators? Bipartisan passage out of the Infrastructure Committee. Can that bipartisan strength be maintained? We, we certainly hope so. You know, we, um, you know, one of the one of the challenges is that it's easy to kind of you know think in terms of well, if you're going to put more weight on a semi, that must mean a heavy more damage to roads and bridges or more danger. And so you have to really further explain it that what the what the significance of that additional axle and additional braking and additional tires and and how much how many fewer trips that will take off uh, a stretch of road. So you have to it, t it takes multiple sentences to explain that, and that's really kind of the inherent challenge. We think the argument is very sound, the data is very sound, and again, we there's a lot of states that currently uh, allow that on a daily basis. So you, you don't have to really guess to see what the impact is going to be. You can actually see it, uh, real evidence of that in a lot of these various states. So that's, so it, it, it always is a controversial issue, but again, I think there's a lot of reasons why it makes a lot of sense. And, and so we're really hopeful that, that Congress will be open to it this year. All right, Mike, let's look around the world. We've seen global supply chains, as, as we've talked about, ad nauseum, just go absolutely crazy for the last three years. It seemed as though things have been improving. And now in the past couple of weeks, I'm reading about a catastrophic drought potentially developing in Central America, restricting Panama Canal depth. Is this going to be an issue for bulk grain exports, or is it mainly finished products moving through the canal? So far, it's really been restricted. The, the main impact has been restricted on containerized vessels um, and the, the newer locks of the, of the Panama Canal. So you have the, the original locks that are still used. They were built and opened in 1914. And then there's the ones, the new locks that were opened in 2016. And these draft or depth restrictions or number of transits that have been reduced is really impacting these larger uh, locks, which bulk grain still uses overwhelmingly the original 1914 locks. Um, so it hasn't had as much impact on bulk shipping thus far, but it's something that clearly can have, can as, as the year proceeds. This isn't still our, our real key export window, so that's another reason why it doesn't, hasn't had as big of an impact on our industry yet. But you know, when as the year progresses, um, it's something that could clearly have an impact Soybeans, U.S. grain it, you, is one of the big customers of the Panama Canal, leaving from Gulf uh, export terminals onto the journey to Asia. It's, it's been a key link in our supply chain. 
Uh, I've taken farmers down to the Panama Canal multiple times. It's, it's something that's very important to us, so clearly something we're going to continue to monitor. Folks, keep an eye on that. This drought they are predicting could be as bad as the one in 2016 down there in Panama, but we'll see how the summer plays out. We've been speaking with Mike Steenhook, director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike, as always, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. And folks, stay with us. We'll be talking with Dr. Steve Meyer from Partners for Production Agriculture about the hog industry here when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Welcome to the 2023 Corn Sprint. Please be silent as the runners take their marks. And looks like one plant has already pulled into an early lead because it's been enhanced with Biopath, a biological fertilizer complement from the Mosaic Company. Wait, wait, and the early favorite has crossed the finish line. Get the most out of your fertilizer investment. Don't forget to add Biopath to your early season application. Talk to your retailer about Mosaic Biologicals today or visit cornsprint.com. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, as we take a look at the market trade action ahead of the June WASDE report from USDA, we see a mixed trade with corn pushing moderately lower. The soy complex a little bit higher. We got a soybean sale announcement on Friday morning. We'll talk more about that in a second. The wheat market trade relatively mixed with livestock trading their way higher here across cattle and hogs. Now, the prevailing theme here today ahead of the WASDE report is that there is potential for the global wheat balance sheet to tighten up a little bit with many production concerns around the world, including China, Australia, and even production concerns in the U.S. There's also thoughts that USDA could justify cutting some corn demand on the old crop side. How much that remains to be seen. We're definitely going to keep our eyes on that here as we work through the day on Friday and see what the USDA has to offer in the June crop report. Now, also, I mentioned a soybean sale announcement Friday morning. USDA said 7.2 million bushels of U.S. soybeans were committed to unknown destinations for the current marketing year. And that's given a little bit of boost to confidence at a time needed by the market as sales have been quite flat for some time. Now, of course, weather is going to be another big factor. We're keeping an eye on the big pivot and the weather pattern in the Midwest. is That's been anticipated for a while. It's expected to start tomorrow. And some areas of the Midwest will get good rains, while others will not. That is the big key we're going to be watching closely, as most of these uh, first rains will be in areas like southwest Iowa, Nebraska, Missouri, southern Illinois, southern Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, and possibly even South Dakota. Livestock off to a robust start on Friday morning, and that trade could take some cues from the WASDE report as well, depending on the impact on grains. You're listening to AOA. For the American Ag Network, I'm Jesse Allen. 
Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues here. And over the past three days in Des Moines, Iowa, participants in the hog industry from around the globe have been gathering at the Iowa State Fairgrounds for the World Pork Expo. Now, this is an event I've had the opportunity, being an Iowa boy, to attend most of my life. And over the past few years, there has been a definite shift in attitude of attendees. Last year, when the World Pork Expo was going on, the futures market was well over $100. The industry was profitable. This year, a little different attitude amongst attendees at World Pork Expo. The hog industry has had a bit of a slide. Joining us now to bring us up to speed is Dr. Steve Meyer from Production uh, Partners for Production Agriculture. And Dr. Meyer, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Mike, Mike, it's great to be with you. Thank you for inviting us. You bet, Steve. Let's let's talk for listeners here who aren't involved in the hog industry. The last six months, Steve, we have seen an incredible reversal in hog prices, last nine months perhaps. Can you fill us in? What's changed from summer 2022 to summer 2023 in hog production? Well, uh, a number of things have changed, but the big one on the price side is that we've had a significant reduction in the level of pork demand in the United States. It's mainly domestic demand, and that has drug, drug down the demand for wholesale product and for hogs. And in retrospect, it's pretty clear what has happened here. We, we enjoyed two record years in 2021 and 22 for pork demand in the United States. And, uh, uh, you know, at the time, we knew that there were a lot of money being uh, thrown, thrown into the economy in the form of stimulus payments and increased SNAP benefits and a number of things. Uh, and, and when those were withdrawn, when we went through all that money and the increased savings that they drove, drove and those kinds of things, in mid-2022, we saw a significant reduction in demand. Now, this demand that we're facing right now is at about the same levels as pre-2021. So I wouldn't classify it as bad pork demand. It's just not nearly as good as 21 and 22. And so that's what's really driven the prices lower here. This is not a supply-driven situation. We're slightly up on slaughter for this year, but part of that is some accounting for pigs that got passed around the first of the year because of that snowstorm back before Christmas. 
And so I, I don't think this is a supply-driven situation. It's not a capacity-driven situation like we had in those couple of months in the fall of 1998. It's strictly lower demand that's caused uh, these lower hog prices. And that, of course, is put against the background of a backdrop of very near record cost of production, and it's causing a huge amount of red ink in the pork industry. And how's the industry responding? As you mentioned, this slide has been very, very quick. Dr. Meyer, what are we seeing with sow numbers here across the country? Well, the March Hogs and Figure Sports still had the sow herd up by a half percent from a year ago. Now, we've got the survey for the June Hogs and Figs report in the field right now. I mean, uh, NASA is uh, running that survey of producers, and we'll have a Hogs and Figs report on June 29th. Um, I, I think it's going to show a slight reduction in the South herd, but we really haven't got into a real reaction to this yet. Uh, I think we're early in the process of that, and uh, uh, I'm not sure it'll show up much in the June Hogs and Pigs report. Judging by South slaughter numbers over the last quarter, uh, it doesn't look like we've made a real big dent in this to cut back those hog numbers as we go forward. All right, so hog supply still sticking in there roughly where it was in 2022, demand roughly where it was back in 2020. I'm curious if we could be heading into a scenario where the supply crunch gets us. Dr. Meyer, I'm hearing reports, Wyndham, Minnesota, potential plant closure, Ontario, Quebec, we've got plants closing. Could a supply threat be in front of us for hog processors? Well, I don't think so. I think we still have enough capacity here in the U.S. And the closure of that plant in Quebec, that's going to cause some problems in Quebec for sure. And it will force some hogs, I think, south into the United States. But, uh, you know, Ole Mills announced that they're going to reduce their slaughter about a million head over a year. Well, that's less than 1% of our, our supply here. So even if all those pigs find their way south, uh, it wouldn't be devastating. Uh, the Wyndham plant closure is a concern, but I think we've still got enough capacity to handle the hogs that are coming at us in the fourth quarter of this year, and that's, of course, the critical time period. Our, my concern on that side is that packers, you know, this is not one of those things where pro producers have lost money and packers have made money. Packers have lost money actually probably longer than producers have here, and so we've got some packers that uh, their performance has not been very good in the last year either and so uh, we're a little bit concerned about you know uh, the performance of those plants uh, but I think we're going to be okay through the fourth quarter of this year and then uh, I believe we're going to get into some supply reductions in 2024 uh, that will leave us okay on the capacity side so um, yeah all of these things are concerning and they could go a number of ways as they play out but that's what I'm expecting. That makes sense. It is concerning. And the number of available options for this market to move is, is huge, given the variables at play right now in the hog market. Dr. Meyer, I'm sure you're kind of sick of talking about this issue after World Pork Expo this week. But I'd like to talk through how the cash market could react as we see Proposition 12 get moved into effect. How is that going to well, impact cash hog trade here in this country? Well, Do in we my know? opinion, that's there's yeah, well, we don't know very quick uh, for for sure. What we know is that uh, they are that Prop 12 is basically going to go into effect on J July 2nd. They're having some webinars now to try to uh, share with people what's going to happen there. They've been very very unclear about what's going to happen to existing inventories of pork of non-compliant pork in California. 
they've not said, you know, can you sell it? Can you not sell it? They won't, they won't give you a straight answer on that. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's our opinion that we have about half as much product as California has consumed in the past that's going to be compliant with Prop 12 uh, at the beginning of July, maybe not even half. And that means that the other half of that 14% of our consumption in the United States is going to have to find a home somewhere else. So I don't think you see anything positive in this. And in fact, I see a pretty negative impact on the cutout value, and that's going to be put pressure on hog prices, even more pressure on hog prices as we go through the second half of the year. Now, you can change these things quicker than what, obviously, we can change the output of pigs. I mean, you know, the sow's being bred right now. Those pigs will come to market uh, 11 months from now or 10 months, yeah, uh, 10, 11 months from now. So we have a very long planning horizon on the production side, and these other factors change much more quickly. And so I'm, I, I was, um, I was pretty Debbie Downer this week at Pork, Pork Expo. I, I don't see a lot of signs for short-term relief from these situations. Uh, probably the best thing that could happen for us is get some rain in the Midwest and raise a really good corn crop and push these costs down some. But even best-case scenario on that, I don't see those costs going below $80. And there's hardly any futures contract on the board right now that would provide a profit of that. So uh, this is a very serious situation that, um, you know, rain in the Midwest to get these costs down and get started cutting back supplies in order to push prices up. I, I think that's the two solutions we have to have. There is some optimism about exports, Mike. Um, you know, we had some pretty good export data yesterday on the product weight basis. Uh, it shows that we're up, I think, 11 or 12% for the year, and that's good. But that's not enough to make a difference on this, uh, to make up the difference on this, this profitability situation. So uh, we'll take all the positive things we can get, but we need more than what we're seeing right now. Steve, I'm wondering if we can we can pick your brain here. Your global connections um, over in China. You know, we're, we're hearing off and on reports about ASF perhaps rebounding in that country. We're hearing reports of of culling of of, cat, of hogs aggressively on the ground in China. How much of any of this is true, and and what do we know from the ground in China with regard to their their pork production? Well, the answer is we don't know much for sure. Um, but what we're hearing is that they have had a rebound of ASF cases. And this is problematic because most of these ASF cases now, as we understand it, are being driven by, uh, by strains of ASF that were actually propagated through illegal vaccines in China. They weren't supposed to be making vaccines, but everybody tried to make one, or a lot of people did. And those strains have turned out to be actually infectious. Now, they're not like the original strain of ASF. The original strain of ASF spread slowly and was very deadly. These are spread much quicker and aren't necessarily deadly, but they're certainly negative to productivity. And so uh, there's still a response of when you start seeing these, you start culling pigs. And, and as we know, ASF doesn't affect people, so those pigs can move into the food supply. You don't have to destroy them. Uh, but uh, there's a strong incentive to get them sold before they die. And so uh, that's we think that's the reason that has so much pressure on Chinese prices right now at a time when we would have thought they would have been rebounding, and that is uh, the re, kind of the, the, the return of ASF problems out in the countryside. My big concern on China long-term is after all of this, after ASF, after COVID, after all these things, 
what's demand for pork going to look like in China? And I think the evidence so far is that we've seen a significant negative impact on pork demand in China. And if that demand goes away, then how much can you ever count on them to be a real uh, place to ship product? And finally, you know, as much as we want to say, well, China could solve all this, you have to remember, we still have a 25% punitive tariff on U.S. product going into China. And uh, that is a huge roadblock uh, for our, us growing our exports there significantly. And again, I just don't think exports are going to be enough to save the us. Lots of hurdles ahead for those hog industry participants. We wish them the best, folks. We've been talking with Dr. Steve Meyer from Partners for Production Agriculture today. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Good day, Mike. Good day. And stick around. Jim Baer from U.S. Apple will join us about the U.K. trade deal when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, Will Stafford, a member of the CHS Government Affairs Team in Washington, D.C., is going to join us for an update on that 2023 Farm Bill. Where do things stand? The current Farm Bill expires on September 30th of this year, which means that Congress either needs to write a new one and pass a new one or extend the current one before then. If we don't get a new Farm Bill written this summer, Will, what happens when the current Farm Bill expires? Technically, the law reverts back to what we call permanent law, which is 1930s and 40s law. And it has things like minimum support prices for different crops that kick in at different starts of new crop years. The big one that you would start hearing about if there is a lapse in the farm bill, folks call it the dairy cliff. 
And that would be January 1, you would see that minimum support price for milk kick in and uh, and get pretty pricey overnight. Will, from CHS's perspective, what are the policies of the cooperative and its owners in this new farm bill? First and foremost, we hear about the importance of the farm safety net, whether that's crop insurance programs or uh, the Title I commodity programs like ARC and PLC. So making sure that those are available, strong, and, and working well for them is always our number one concern. In addition, we, we play a big role in advocating on the trade title. We just had one of our executive vice presidents testifying in front of the House Agriculture Committee last week on those programs. And then we're looking at the conservation title very, uh, very closely as well, not only for new opportunities for, for co-ops like CHS and maybe ways that we can become more partners with USDA and getting some of those conservation programs out the door to our owners, uh, but also just making sure that those programs stay voluntary, not mandatory for our owners to use and make sure that they're not attached to anything like their ability to obtain crop insurance or anything like that. Will, thanks for joining us this week. Thank you. And thank you for joining us here around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416. For 24-hour response, call 800-209-6416. 800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for making AOA a part of your day today. We're going to turn the focus, you guessed it, back to Washington, D.C. We're seeing a lot of policy impact the world of agriculture. And one group that has been very active in D.C. over the last several years and was active there this past week is the U.S. Apple Association. Joining us today to discuss their recent trip with their board member to the White House is Jim Baer, president and CEO of U.S. Apple. And Jim, thanks for joining us here today. You bet, Mike. How are you? I am fantastic, sir. I understand it has been a busy week for the board at U.S. Apple. You had a chance to talk to the Biden administration. And Jim, what was on the minds of board members there at U.S. Apple? Well, two issues that you and I have talked about multiple times over the uh, last few months, Mike, are two issues for as they are for most of agriculture or trade, certainly at the top of the list, and then for labor-dependent ag sectors like us and livestock and custom harvesters and so forth, of course, labor is is our other big topic. And we were excited to take our board of directors into the White House and meet with people on the president's personal staff to talk about those issues. And frankly, we were 
pleased with the reception we got. They were knowledgeable and, and uh, welcoming, and that's really uh, all we could hope for. That is always good to hear, Jim. If you would, our listeners who are outside the Apple industry, it has been a volatile two years in the global, uh, or four or five years, I suppose, in the, in the global Apple trade business. Can you fill us in on, on the struggles the Apple industry has faced globally? Yeah, our exports are at 30-year lows, and that's particularly painful because the the reasons for those uh, declines in our exports, which is similar to your listeners in uh, in a farm country, it's regardless of what the commodity is, a lot of it has to do with government policies, and that's true of of both parties. It's it's a, a disappointment for agriculture that the the trade issues are often uh, pushed onto us when we don't really have a dog in the fight. And the steel and aluminum tariffs of the last administration continue to to hurt us. And India, for example, was a market that we literally owned for decades. And in four and a half years, the loss of the India market because of the steel and aluminum tariffs, that's cost Apple growers a half a billion, with a B, half a billion dollars in lost sales. And to make it worse, those sales are now being uh, filled by countries like Iran and Turkey, who are not America uh, friends. And so, you know, we're losing markets to come to uh, countries that oppose us in many, many ways. So that's particularly painful. And then, uh, you know, we we would also say that the, you know, the current administration hasn't really even announced a trade strategy uh, and hasn't even announced that they're pursuing any free trade agreements. So those are really what's impacting U.S. agriculture. All of that being said, with those Section 232 tariffs, this administration was very critical of those when they came out from the prior administration. Any indication that they might be going away, Jim? Disappointingly, no, Mike. And we had high hopes. I guess we should have known better. I mean, I guess if there's one thing we know about President Biden is he's a union guy, and that's that's no surprise. He's been a union guy for, for as long as he's been in public office. And as you say, he did criticize those tariffs, and we thought maybe there's a glimmer of hope here that we can uh, get rid of those and get the U.S. back into doing what we do best in agriculture, and that's uh, that's exporting products around the world. And unfortunately, that's not the case. Uh, we also, you know, the U.S. pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, in the previous administration, and that would have been great for agriculture. So, you know, neither party can say that they're really standing up for for U.S. agriculture in the trade arena, that's for sure. We do have an opportunity, it sounds like, Jim, for a new trade agreement with the United Kingdom. Did that come up uh, in your discussions at the White House? It, it, it did, uh, and we're, we are gratified that Congress, on a bipartisan basis in both the House and the Senate this week, sent a letter uh, with sent a letter from a, a coalition, including U.S. Apple and our friends at uh, beef and pork and corn and soy and wheat and, and dairy, and we're all working together to try to get Congress to give the president authority to negotiate a free trade agreement with the U.K. I know you and I have talked in the past that it's hard to export to the EU because of their radical farm-to-fork policies, which are uh, discouraging and even have the goal of getting rid of, of the compounds of modern agriculture like pesticides and fertilizers. So it's hard to see us ever exporting much to the EU in the near term. And so with the the UK leaving the EU uh, under Brexit, we think there's an opportunity there. 
so long as we can get a trade agreement and they will adopt some rational science-based rules like we have here in the U.S. The U.K. should be a natural market. It's our strongest ally in the world. should be a natural market for U.S. ag products. It once was a significant market for apples and could be again if we had a, an agreement and a good set of rules. So we'll continue to watch, see what comes from those discussions. But Jim, before we let you go, the work Farm Workforce Modernization Bill, U.S. Apple was pushing that hard in the last congressional cycle, didn't quite make it across the finish line. Will something similar be introduced into this Congress? Well, that was a disappointment. We got it passed through the House representatives. And when I say we, it's not just apples, but it's all the ag uh, sectors that are highly dependent on, on human labor, livestock, and dairy, and uh, specialty crops, for example, and custom harvesters. And uh, so we got it passed through the House twice. The Senate um, wouldn't bring it up, and that was a disappointment. So we go back in a new Congress. We go back to square one. There's a lot of attention on immigration these days, and we don't like being lumped in with immigration. The people that you see lined up at the, at the southern border are not coming here to milk cows or pick apples uh, or combine wheat. Uh, and so when members of Congress are frequently telling us that they want a solution, but they won't bring up agriculture without a border security package and we say that's crazy don't make farmers responsible for border security that's right. not our job okay so we'll continue to watch see what happens in dc that effort remains to improve ag labor accessibility we've been talking to jim bear of us apple tune in tomorrow for more aoa this is mike pearson thanks for listening to agriculture of america Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Welcome to the 2023 corn sprint. Please be silent as the runners take their marks. And looks like one plant has already pulled into an early lead because it's been enhanced with Biopath, a biological fertilizer complement from the Mosaic Company. Wait, wait, and the early favorite has crossed the finish line. Get the most out of your fertilizer investment. Don't forget to add Biopath to your early season application. Talk to your retailer about Mosaic Biologicals today or visit cornsprint.com. At YMCA Summer Camp, kids find their why. Friendship and fun, a world of adventure beneath a golden sun. Running, laughing, full of wonder. Being themselves is second nature. Summer Camp is where they begin to unlock the confidence that lies within. When kids find new passions, they find their why. Summer camp season starts soon. Learn more at ymca.org for a better us. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too to be a beacon of strength, a champion of courage, an advocate for hope. You are not alone because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. win. We, we, we are, are the, the Foundation, foundation Fighting, fighting Blindness. Blindness.
Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org.